Happy Saturday. It's April 9th, 2022, and you are right here with us on Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, I was hoping to hear the third host of the show this morning, but she seems kind of quiet. For those of you who don't know, there's a new member of the Ashley household. And what is her name? Her name is Landacres Araminta the First, Minty for short. Of course, I had to give her a posh English name. Come on, you know me. We have a new dog. She's a little English cocker spaniel. So if you start hearing yipping going on in the background, or if I go slowly insane over the course of recording this podcast, you know why. I saw a picture of her. She's heartbreakingly cute. Couldn't be more snuggly. So we'll have to have her on the show soon. I was like, you know, we got out of this pandemic. Like, life is just getting a little too easy, isn't it, Michael? Let's just throw some more complexity into the situation. Exactly. I need one more thing to juggle. Why not? Let's do the post-breaking of a puppy at the same time that all this is going on. You know, it's funny because I think the theme of our show today is probably going to be people making life more complicated than it needs to be. So that is a good entry point. Where do you want to go? Well, Vladimir Putin is being the obvious example. I think we should start with the latest happenings in Russia. We have a dispatch from good old Moscow in the issue this week. It was reported by our assistant editor, Elena Claverino, and she talks to some fairly flush types who have managed to circumvent the restrictions and the sanctions in order to live their best lives despite the war that is unfolding in their neighbor next door. Meanwhile, in Europe, things are not looking any peachier. We have a lot of drama going on with Prince Andrew. Shocking. I feel like he should have learned his lesson by now. It's like, what level of shame and disgust has he not wrought upon the monarchy? And it turns out that this guy just can't quit. Yeah, this is, I mean, if you saw the photograph of him escorting his mother, the queen, to the memorial service, as I sort of dubbed it this week, dead man walking his mother. And the question right now is, this is a guy who seems to cause outrage all the time. And if the monarchy gets dragged down, as we say, if the firm gets dragged down because this guy has to sort of still stand front and center, even after he paid a woman who he claimed not to have never met, which is already a problem. It might be in large part to Andrew. And who better, who better, Ashley, to deconstruct all of this than the wonderful Stuart Heritage, right? We had Stu on the program last week. He's one of our writers at large based in Kent, and he is a newspaper columnist, a frequent contributor to Airmail on all things royal and all things UK, frankly. But Stu is intimately familiar with the saga of Prince Andrew because he's been reporting on the royals for so long. Honestly, he probably knows way more about them than he wants to. But that's why we're bringing him on here to tell us exactly what we need to know. Welcome, Stu. Hello. All right. So first of all, walk us through exactly what went down at Prince Philip's memorial service. Okay. So if you remember, almost exactly a year ago, when Prince Philip died, there was a very kind of austere, weekly populated funeral because of COVID regulation. So there's this image, now quite an iconic image of the Queen sitting alone grieving her husband. And as such, they have sort of had a, the royal family have had a postponed memorial service for Prince Philip, which was supposed to be a nice ceremony where everyone would think about Prince Philip and, and all the good things he did. However, in an apparently unscheduled <laughs> move, Prince Andrew, the least popular royal possibly of all time, including the ones that murdered his wives, turned up holding hands pretty much with the Queen, which kind of overshadowed everything because he's supposed to be in exile. And I have, I have a feeling it was, um, it, it was his attempt at a sort of a career comeback. And if it was, it's, it's gone terribly because people like him even less now. All right. Now, tell us also about this dubious situation with a gentleman named Turk. Make sense of this for us. He's gotten himself entangled in some financial peccadilloes as well. What on earth is going on there? Yeah, it's a confusing case. You do sort of think that he would have learned where to accept money from 
given his Jeffrey Epstein connections. But in 2019, at the end of 2019, he, Prince Andrew, held a pitch at Palace event. Pitch at Palace, it's like Shark Tank. People come up and they say their ideas for businesses and Prince Andrew claps and it's all his idea. And it was won by a man called Selman Turk, who, <laughs> according to witnesses who were at the event, said, and this is a word-for-word quote, they said that his pitch was crap but he won it miraculously. And then a few days later, Prince Andrew received a lot of money, over a million dollars from a wealthy Turkish businesswoman whose husband is a political prisoner. And she was told that the money was to speed along a passport application, which in and of itself is kind of dodgy. Probably shouldn't send money to the royal family because you want a passport faster. However, she is now suing Selman Turk, the winner of the Pitcher Palace event, because he's the one who said to send him the money. And she says he's defrauded her out of, I think it's about $50 million over the years. And what's strange about the money that Prince Andrew received is that it came in the form of sort of various presents. They were called gifts. Princess Beatrice got a vast amount of money that was called a wedding gift. He Apparently, he paid the catering for um, Sarah Ferguson's 60th birthday. As one does. That just seemed very logical to me, Stu. I mean, I was hoping you'd do that for my birthday, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so complicated and there's no there's no suggestion that prince andrew's been involved in any wrongdoing and apparently he's given a lot of the money back sarah ferguson isn't giving her money back that's my favorite part of this no matter the scandal she's saying she owned it legitimately as a brand ambassador but it's still it's just weird that people are just sending him lots of money for basically no reason i mean and there's just a whole history of him kind of accepting money and getting sort of stuck he was trying to sell off his chalet his swiss chalet that that wasn't a completely kind of transparent transaction well let me ask you this so in the days after the memorial service you know there was chatter in the press that two people most upset most infuriated by him sliding in next to his mother and taking center stage walking her down the aisle were prince charles and prince william right basically the two people with the most to lose if andrews were to succeed in tanking the firm right in the uk there what is the sense of dislike for you've said before People love the Queen, but they have strong sentiment against the monarchy. Is is that growing after something like this? I think so. People are sort of questioning. There's been all sorts of things happening with Prince Charles and Prince William as well, which is, is not helping. Prince William went on a really disastrous foreign tour, which was basically marked by people. The worst photo opportunities ever, which was him standing partitioned by a wire fence from a lot of Jamaican people with their hands stretched out, which looked incredibly out of touch. He had to sit through a speech where someone in government was saying how much they would like to get rid of the monarchy in Jamaica. It was a mess. And then recently this week, there's a documentary on Netflix, which has revealed that Prince Charles went uh, for kind of publicity advice to a guy called Jimmy Savile, who is one of the most notorious kind of sexual abusers in British history. So that isn't working out very well for him either. It all seems like it's hanging on by a thread a little bit. So no wonder if they've got the chance to kick. I mean, getting Prince Andrew away from everyone just seems like such an open goal. I can't blame him for doing it. Yeah, the only thing better would have been for fireworks would have seen if Harry had slid into the pole position next to the Queen. <laughs> just sort of shown up at the last minute like, hey, everyone, I'm here with Grammy. <laughs> that would have been lovely in a way. She would have got to meet her granddaughter. That's a big thing that people are very worried about. Will the Queen ever get to meet her granddaughter? And I'm guessing probably not. Stu, while we have you on the subject, what's the chatter on the street and in your circles about the Queen and her health and her worldview? How's she doing? 
Well, she's very, very old. I think people are concerned because the last time I believe she was sort of caught in earshot of anyone in the press standing up, she was complaining that she couldn't move. And she's moved away from Buckingham Palace permanently to Windsor Castle now. And I think it's being kitted out for wheelchairs. So she's certainly infirm. I don't know anything beyond that. And also there are lots of kind of big news pieces written a few years ago about what will happen in the event of her death. And they seem to be getting shared with more and more regularity. Well, Stu, our thoughts are with the Queen. Our thoughts are with you. (laughs) Please keep (laughs) us updated on this important news story because Lord knows we need it. And we will talk to you again soon. This is still developing. Yes, it is. Lovely to talk to you always. Great to see you, Stu. Bye, Stu. You know what I am excited about this week? Speaking of like people who are back in the news. Yeah, who? Just on the tantalizing and perhaps triumphant return to Augusta and the Masters of Tiger Woods. You've lost me. Okay, go ahead. There's golf happening? Tiger Woods, 14 months ago, rolls his car over, breaks his leg in like 45 places. Is he going to ever walk or play again? Here he is now saying thinks he's going to play the Masters. So come on, that's a little bit of a something to keep your eye on. I know we rarely talk about sports here on Morning Meeting, but that's a big story. His son is some sort of a golf prodigy as well, right? What's the story with that? The son is coming along, seems to be following in his father's footsteps. And Tiger walked the course this week, and afterwards the press asked him if he's going to play. Someone said, do you think he could win? And he said, I feel I could. Now, I mean, this is phenomenal. All right, I'm going to let you handle that one. I'm on it. Meanwhile, Alessandro was telling us about, I missed this in Variety, but thank God Alessandro saw it. Did you know that they're making a new dramatic series based on the life of Mussolini? I do, as I dubbed it, Shoes for All. God. It's a new drama that's going to be on the Sky Network. This is based on Antonio Scarotti's award-winning novel, M, Son of the Century. And this traces the birth of good old-fashioned fascism in Italy and the ascent of Mussolini. It's going to be an eight-part series, and it's going to cover the period from the founding of Faschi Italiani, the party of which he was the leader in 1919, through his speech in Parliament following the murder of the socialist MP Giacomo Matteotti in 1925. It's going to cover a relatively short period in his life. But I mean, on one hand, the argument is we're living in a time of the return of fascism in many ways. So it's important to go back and look. And I just picture the pitch meeting. I picture the guy, you know, whoever was like, this is something out of a uh, Ricky Gervais kind of sketch. We picture guy. Okay. It's like, I got one word for you. Mussolini. They wrinkle their faces. He's like, no, no, no. Here it is. Mussolini. He made the trains run on time. A man of optimism, right? Mm, sounds good. <laughs> That could work. Yeah. Yeah. How's it open? A little boy in a town has no shoes. The trains are coming. So who knows how Hollywood will treat it, but that's what release dates are for. You know what else falls under crazy, Ashley? Crazy or crazy people making their lives even more difficult for no real reason? They're both the same thing, right? Yeah, probably. How about a guy out of London that is a very famous name, right? Yeah, there's a little scandal involving the artist Damien Hirst. Now he's 56 years old. He's managed to wrangle a fortune of $394 million. Wow. Thanks largely to his boxes filled with flies and his canvases covered with colored dots. He's a cultural phenomenon. The guy makes pickled animals and we used to be here for it. But it turns out that the guy doesn't really make this stuff himself. Shock do shock. Instead, he outsources this labor to over 150 assistants at studios in London and Gloucestershire. And so it turns out that not all of these assistants are especially happy with Mr. Hurst. Yeah. Now, look, this is not unusual in the art world. Jeff Koons has a lot of assistance. It's sort of this, the Andy Warhol factory model of getting other people to do it. But as Hearst said, especially when he did his first dot paintings in 
things. He said, I did the first five and then I got the money from the sale. And I said, I'm sick of this. Why shouldn't I just hire someone to do it? So they mass produced these things. But this story by Harriet Denny's gets a whistleblower inside his factory in Gloucestershire, which she describes as a grim facility on the edge of a housing estate where colleagues work for low wages, disemboweling dead animals, slicing them in two with giant saws or standing in full protective equipment, waist deep in formaldehyde, the chemical to order to preserve them. Amid the stress of the pandemic, their jobs simply vanished. Meanwhile, Hearst took a total of $1.7 million in government furlough money. What struck me as so interesting about this is in some ways his operation resembles that of both a luxury brand and a slaughterhouse. He's got 150 assistants busy pickling animals and putting them in plexiglass boxes. And then on the other hand, you have a completely absentee foreman of this factory and Hearst himself. He only visited apparently about once a month. His assistants would send him pictures and his response would be, great. These people are just churning out goods and he's capitalizing on them using the Hearst brand name. In some ways, it's indicative of where the art market is going. You know where else the art market is going? I'll tell you. Please do. To the moon. Really? As George Kaljarakis writes in this week's diary, another guy who I just mentioned who has a factory-like approach to creating artwork, Jeff Coons is sending some of his sculptures to the moon and selling corresponding NFTs for each of them. The proceeds, he claims, are going to go to uh, Doctors Without Borders, according to George. But the artwork will be sent to the moon in July as a part of a mission commemorating Apollo 17 lunar landing, which was the last manned mission to the moon. And so they're going to be housed in a transparent, thermally coated, sustainably built, enclosed art cube and will be the first authorized artworks to be placed on the surface of the moon where they will remain in perpetuity. So maybe depends what kind of Coons fan you are, Coons to the moon. Either it's Earth loss is the moon's gain or the moon's gain is our loss. I don't know. But maybe there's going to be a big, shiny balloon puppy on the moon now. I guess. I mean, it's pretty clear from everything we read in the papers that humanity is losing. But I like your bit of optimism. That's me. (laughs) The optimist. Okay, cool. All right. So speaking of people who have gone nuts, we have a really interesting story in the issue by Charles Learson in which he traces the path of Lara Logan from centrist Democrat to, shall we say it, far-right nut job. When Fox News cancels your show, you know you've done something really wrong. Yeah, many of you probably remember Lara Logan most on her biggest stage, which was she was a 60 Minutes correspondent. And in her earliest days, as her CBS colleagues say, she was kind of a down-the-center Democrat, even though she may have started as a swimsuit model in her native South Africa. And she broke some major stories, but she was seen as very courageous. She went to Kabul, was always on the front lines. She survived a landmine explosion on the Afghan border in 2003. But she suffered what was, if you follow her career, was a horrible attack in the spring of 2011 when she went to Egypt to cover what was then the end of Hosni Mubarak's rule. She was with a bunch of other television crews, Anderson Cooper among them, and Everyone was instructed to get out of the square because there was celebration, but there was also protest and just generally a lot of craziness going on. And as Lara recounts, she says she was raped by the hands of approximately 300 men. It was very difficult for her to get out, an incredibly traumatic experience. 
it was about 30 minutes that she was in the square. And this has been well documented in the press and otherwise. But according to some people in her inner circle, this was a really traumatic event for her. She's suffering from PTSD and... Some people are speculating that this contributed to her radicalization. Now, others are saying that she's married to a guy who is a fairly right-wing personality and that he could have impacted her worldview as well. So who really knows? But it's really sad what's happened to her. She used to be such a shining star for journalists and it was an inspiration to a lot of women, frankly, who saw her reporting from these zones of conflict and saw something to aspire to. And now, unfortunately, she's just turned out to be spouting conspiracy theories and getting kicked off of Fox News. Yeah, which to remind everyone, they banned her last December and Fox News, which you think they're happy to have anyone's opinions on. She went on the air in December and said that, quote, many people, unquote, were telling her that Anthony Fauci reminded them of Joseph Mengele, the sadistic Nazi doctor of death. And before she could even sort of get an apology out there, her show dried up and her agent fired her. So it's a remarkable and complicated and sad fall of one's promising journalist. Indeed. Oh, and happier news. Happier news? Lay it on me. See, I'm the optimist. I want puppies on the air talking. I want happy news. This is happy chat. What do we got? We've got puppies and we've got drag queens. Okay, so we have a story from Alexandra Marshall, one of our writers at large based in Paris. And she encountered a fairly fabulous person during Fashion Week. His name is C.T. Hedden. And by night, he's the general manager of Indochine here in New York. And by day, he is a very famous drag queen and the toast of fashion, it turns out. Alex saw him at the Rick Owen show in Paris and spent some time with him and interviewed him. And this is a guy who is really living life to its fullest and is full of joie de vivre and is making a name for himself post-COVID and reinventing himself career-wise. This is a fun story with some great pictures, and I encourage all of you to take a look. Okay, another story I'd encourage you all to take a look at, and it will make you feel really happy and exactly what you need to see right now. Ashley has written up one of my favorite places I've ever visited in Italy, just next door to France. A little place, I shouldn't say little, beautiful place in the Marema. It's called Castello di Vicarello. It was the first place I ever took Brooke on vacation. And now you've written it up for View with a Room this week, right? Yeah, this is a great little hotel. It's in the Marema region of Tuscany, which is on the southwestern coast of Italy, full of these great little Renaissance and medieval towns and the thermal springs of Saturnia, which are incredible. This hotel has been owned by by the Bacchese family since the 1970s. It's a 12th century castle and they completely renovated it in the 70s and now they have three grown sons who are really involved in the property too. And they've just done a renovation and it looks better than ever. They have astronomers coming in from Siena to take you stargazing and they have an entire farm to table experience in the restaurant. They grow their own olive oil and produce and even wine on the property. And now they're going to loan you. This is the best part, Michael. This when I'm sure the last time you were there, they did not have this, but now they are loaning guests their car and this is not like a Kia Sonata. This is a vintage Fiat 500. I mean, if that's not hospitality, then I don't know what is. Uh, that sounds fantastic. And I'm, I was there pre-GPS days. And I just want to say, Brooke and I had a couple disagreements on navigating those back roads. But I'm sure now it's a lot easier. But it couldn't be in a more beautiful part of the world. I mean, just, I always picture it in my mind. I picture the food that Aurora cooks and overseas in that kitchen. And yeah, it's just magical. 
I love it. And one of the sons of the Bacchese family, Neri Bacchese, has opened a new seven-room guest house in Milan. It's called Vice Milano, and it's really beautiful. It's located on Corso Genova, which is really close to the Duomo and the Via Tortona district. But this is a great place for it. It's already become kind of a fashion hangout. But if you are looking for the city and country experience, it's a great way to plan your trip to Italy this summer. So make sure to check it out. Okay, Michael, we have a special treat today. We have Bruce Handy here. He is a journalist, a frequent contributor to Airmail, and the author of Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. We are not here to talk about children, though, today. In fact, we are here to talk about Michael Cimino, who is the celebrated Hollywood director and also the subject of a new biography, Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and The Price of a Vision by Charles Elton. So welcome, Bruce. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Are you a longtime Chimino fan, or was this book your introduction to him as a person? What's your history here? Oh, well, so I am 63, so I'm old enough to have seen The Deer Hunter in a theater when it first came out, which I did. It was a movie that had a lot of anticipation. People knew it was going to be a big movie before it came out, but I remember seeing it with a friend. I think I was a sophomore in college. And no, we were just blown away. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie ever, but it's very intense. I mean, I remember the scenes of where De Niro and when they're imprisoned by the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese, and they're in these like sort of cages in the water and they're forced to play Russian roulette. I remember literally shaking. My friend and I were just shaking in our seats. It was so intense. And I remember, you know, I watched the film a few years ago, just on streaming or DVD or something. And it's still, I mean, it really... There's a lot of parts of the film that don't hold up necessarily, but the intensity of those scenes still do. I mean, I think it's really probably one of the most brutal mainstream movies ever made. I mean, and yeah, I think brutal is really the right word for it. The thing at the time, too, it was a big deal because that was when Hollywood and pop culture were just really starting to deal with Vietnam. That was the same year that the movie Coming Home came out with Jane Fonda and John Voight. And those films were sometimes seen as kind of opposition to each other when the Jane Fonda film being kind of the more liberal take on the war and the Chimino film being supposedly the more conservative take on the war. I think the movie is sort of more complicated than that. And Apocalypse Now came out a year after that. So it was kind of this wave. So it was a huge big deal at the time. And of course, yeah, as you know, it won the Oscar for Best Picture for 1978. That's his film that literally had you shaking in your seat. And then he follows that his third movie, that was his second movie, his third movie, which he does shortly after that, literally has people shaking their heads, right? And that's Heaven's Gate. So he goes from masterpiece to basically meltdown, which is a focus of the book, right? The book is a full-length biography. Well, The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate, as in the subtitle, those are really the two films of his that matter. And it's certainly the writer and anybody who's going to think about Chimino has to grapple with Heaven's Gate, which, you know, a movie I did not like the vast, vast majority of filmgoers I did not see at the time. It famously went way over budget. It's been kind of I think the writer of the biography, Charles Elton, makes the case fairly successfully that Chimino became kind of the lightning rod for like a whole sort of generation and actually really generations of Hollywood indulgence. He was hardly the first spendthrift indulgent Hollywood director. You can go back to films like Greed and D.W. Griffith and whatever. So yeah, it was a big disaster. It went way over budget. It was supposed to be, I think, like 10 million or something. It ended up costing 40 million at the time. Heaven's Gate is a more complicated movie and a better movie really than its reputation has it. It was kind of restored and re-released in uh, 2013. I think that restoration premiered at the New York Film Festival and now available for streaming. I watched it. I'd seen it once. Well, there's several versions of Heaven's Gate. The first one that came out was almost four hours. I think it was three hours and 40 minutes. That was yanked. That opened in New York and then played for a week and then was yanked. 
Chimino recut the film and they released like a two and a half hour version about six months later, which was, wasn't was quite as big a disaster as the first version, but it, it was out of theaters pretty quickly. The real problem with it, I think, is, is the script. There's three sort of main characters. One is a sheriff played by Chris Christopherson, and there's kind of a sort of hitman type character played by Christopher Walken, and then there's a madam played by Isabel Huppert, and there's kind of a love triangle between them, and none of that really quite makes sense. You really have no idea who these characters are or why they're in the West and why they're sort of entangled with each other. Anybody who really cares about movies should definitely should see Heaven's Gate at some point in their life. It's something worth watching. It's definitely, it's the kind of filmmaking that just we'll never see again. I mean, you see how detailed some of these scenes are with basically an entire kind of modest-sized Western city with extras and stores and trains. It would all be digital now. I mean, this is kind of, in some ways, the last gasp of that kind of old-fashioned epic filmmaking, like something like Gone with the Wind or whatever, where they would literally have thousands of extras. So, In Elton's book, he encountered some difficulties in writing about Chimino. He was not always honest in interviews. Tell us a little bit about him. As- and I think probably one of the, the newsiest things that will be in this book is that starting in the 90s and 2000s, there was a lot of rumors in Hollywood and Vanny Fair even wrote a piece about this. I forget what year it was, but there are a lot of rumors that Chimino was transitioning. Which he seems like a guy, obviously, as you say in your review, he's shrouded in mysteries, not just his origin, but he dies at 77 in 2016, but even the date of death is unknown. He was found days later. Yeah, he died alone at home. The cause of death was never made public. A bit of a fabulist, and yet it's still amazing when you look at, as you said, his first film is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, the Clint Eastwood movie. Second movie is The Deer Hunter, and then he goes for Heaven's Gate. So, I mean, in four or five years, just unbelievable jump of talent, and then he sort of, for the next few decades, just ends up on the fringes, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really one of the great, Chimino story is really one of the great Hollywood rise and fall stories. He kind of hit the scene almost really as fast as Orson Welles in terms of having such a big success. I mean, Deer Hunter was his second film, not his first film, but in a lot of sense, it came out of nowhere. Yeah, and then he just immediately kind of shoots himself in the foot with this crazy overproduction of Heaven's Gate. No, Bruce, all I'd say is I think you've made everyone probably, if they haven't seen ever The Deer Hunter, which you note near you also features Meryl Streep's first significant performance as well as a young, super handsome De Niro and Chris Walken. If you've never seen that, make sure you do see that. I would say Heaven's Gate, you can make that an alternate if you want, but it's a piece that everyone should see. Actually, I should say also, yeah, for Christopher Walken fans, uh, Walken is, actually gives, I think, a terrific performance in Heaven's Gate. And he's also, I didn't remember him being so young and beautiful, but he was really young and beautiful in that film and beautifully photographed. Well, thanks so much, Bruce. We look forward to seeing you back on here again soon to talk about some other fabulous moment in Hollywood. No, me too. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Michael, before we go out into the weekend... Good spring weather beckons. I'm going to see The Lion King on Broadway. We'll talk about that at another time. I want you to tell me, what do you have to recommend? I do have something to recommend. It's called Slow Horses. It's a new limited series that just started on Apple Plus TV. And if you're a fan of Spy and all things British, this is for you. It's based on the novel by a writer named Mick Herron, who some see as the best spy fiction writer since John le Carre. And it stars Gary Oldman as the head of Slow Low House, which is basically a rubber room or dumping ground for disgraced MI5 agents who've screwed up on the job and are not out in the cold, but just outcasts from the field. Oldman 
is terrific. He's this kind of shambling, booze-soaked, dandruff-laden mess presiding over these discredited team as they're struggling to get back in the game. It's moody, saturated with London rain and darkness, but also it has flashes of a great dark comedy. The rest of the cast is great as well. You've got Kristen Scott Thomas and Jonathan Price, and as an added bonus, you've got a theme song sung by Mick Jagger. So, Apple Plus TV, Slow Horses. And you, Ashley, what about you? I have something that I will not recommend. Watch out. Have you seen the new Julia Child series on HBO? I have not. Tell me what I need to know about this or not know. Okay, look, there's a new series on HBO Max. It's called Julia, and it documents the rise of her television show in particular. So we're not going back to look at my life in France. We are looking at the Cambridge period and beyond. And it stars Sarah Lancaster as Julia Child. She's a well-known English actress. And you've got David Hyde Pierce, who's playing Paul Child. And look, these guys, It's the, the deck was stacked against them from the start. After Marilyn Stanley Tucci, like, do you really want to go there and revisit those characters? I don't know. But this is a story that I'm just not sure needs to be told again. I mean, there was the documentary that came out last year, which I saw. There was Julia Julia and Julia and all the hullabaloo surrounding that. There are the countless books. I think it's safe to say that her legacy is alive and well. And it strikes me that why do we keep creating series and TV shows and books and movies and all this stuff about this woman who was remarkable and wonderful and impactful, but there are also a lot of other voices and talents whose stories have been completely buried or lost to time in history. So like showrunners, TV writers, let's get a little bit more creative on the next front and tell us something we don't already know. But the weirdest thing about it is that it stars David Hyde Pierce, as I mentioned, as Paul Child, but it also stars Bebe Newart as Avis Devoto. So you're going to end up with major Frasier flashbacks, and I hope you're okay with that. Major Frasier. I do love the phrase. Hi, Kelsey. Anyway, okay. Michael, on that note, we want to thank you all for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. And Michael, please read us out. I shall. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. But we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meaning. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify, but most of all, thanks for joining us.